Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. It's a huge joy for me today to be with my friend, Ken Cohen. Ken Cohen is the executive editor and founder of the Qigong Research and Practice Center. He is a world-renowned health educator, China scholar, and Qigong Grandmaster, with more than 45 years of experience. A former collaborator with Alan Watts, he is the author of the internationally acclaimed book, The Way of Qigong, The Art and Science of Chinese Energy Healing, best-selling healing audio and video courses on Sound True, and more than 200 journal articles. Ken Coin is a leader in dialogue between ancient wisdom and modern science. He was able to demonstrate extraordinary physiological states evidenced through EEG, body potential, and bioelectric fields as one of nine exceptional healers who studied in Manager's Clinic Cooper Hall Project probably the first Qigong practitioner in the West to treat physician-referred patients. His sponsor has have included the American Cancer Society, the Mayo Clinic, and numerous hospitals, medical schools, conferences, and cultural organizations. For most of his life, Ken has lived at the edge of Indian Peaks Wilderness in Colorado, at an elevation of 9,000 feet. Um, I've noticed that I've been a bit confused during this introduction, Ken, and I think it's because there's so much to say about you that in a way I would like to defer to you and ask you, after all this, what would you like to say about yourself to our friends? Taoism, our tendency is to return to the primal, undifferentiated chaos. It becomes more <laughs> difficult. <laughs> more uh, difficult to speak. Uh, um, that's wonderful. Especially since Lao Tzu, you know, the founder of the Tao De, of, of philosophical Taoism and the author of the Tao Te Ching. And by the way, his name means the old child. That already tells you something about mm. the, the old child. He starts right out saying, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the Tao, in, in, in one of 250 translations of that opening sentence. So already we're in the realm of the ineffable. As soon as we say it, we've already lied, because the Tao is the source of speech itself. It's that which comes before words. It's the antecedent of concepts. As a result, how can we talk about it? As soon as we start to talk about it, we're fragmenting yin from yang, and then it's no longer the Tao and its 
purest form. So, so there's a problem, there's a paradox <laughs> in speaking about Taoism. And, and yet, uh, you know, I think it's always been the job of poets, you could say, to express the inexpressible, to use words to show where ultimately words cannot go. So the, the words just open the door, but in terms of really understanding what Taoism is, ultimately it's going to be a matter not of philosophical discussion, but of experience. In, in fact, in that opening line from the Tao Te Ching, from the 4th century B.C. classic of Taoism, when it says the Tao that can be spoken of is not the Tao, one of the earliest Taoist commentators on the Tao Te Ching, as opposed to, let's say, a Confucian commentator, interprets the line this way. The Tao that can be spoken of is not the eternal Tao, because the only way you can understand that Tao is through experience, through meditation, not through talking about it. So we're always, we're always only getting to the doorway with words. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, words have their place. In terms of what, you know, what are we talking about? What are we talking about Taoism? How are we going to define the, the ineffable? Well, we've, we've got a couple of ways of looking at this. First, in terms of just the practical tradition of Taoism, you have a philosophical root in the writings and philosophy of Lao Tzu, the old child from about 4th century B.C., and those who followed him, such as Zhuang Tzu, by the way, these are all available in English translation. Liedza, um, Guanza, a bunch of other philosophers during the Warring States period, a period of intense aggression and turmoil in Chinese history, when many people withdrew from society and were looking for a higher and deeper truth in nature. That tradition of mountain recluses combined with various meditative and healing techniques along with some influence from very early Chinese shamanism, laid the philosophical foundation for Taoism. But at that time period, there were no people who could say, I am a Taoist. There were no Taoist monasteries. There was nothing called Taoism. Later, later, you know, Taoism, in a sense, backdated itself. Once there were Taoist monasteries and practitioners, specialized Taoist practitioners, they said, well... Our philosophy really begins with Lao Tzu. But again, at the time of Lao Tzu, there was no Taoist movement. There were no specialized temples or monasteries for Taoism. That began at a later time. So you have, you know, in terms of Taoist origins, you've got Taoist philosophy. And then finally, what might be called Taoist religion or even alchemical and ritual Taoism, that began around the second century with a very popular healer, some people might even call him a faith healer, named Zhang Daoling, mm -hmm. who had a vision in which Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoist philosophy, appeared as a kind of god or spirit and announced himself as Tai Shang Lao Jun, the Most High Lord Lao. And in plumes of incense smoke, this spirit dictated almost mediumistically various Taoist texts, and that became really the origin of Taoism as a movement. The first Taoist church, you could say, began around the second century. Zhang Daoling was so, had such charisma, I mean, he must have, that, that he attracted more than 100,000 converts to his Taoist religion during his, his 
lifetime. And so from that point on, you had various sects of Taoism developing, as you have with other religious movements. You have the one that traces itself directly to Zhang Daoling, called the Heavenly Masters sect of Taoism, Tianxi. You have liturgical traditions. You have the more popular Longmen or Dragon Gate Taoism, beginning around 1100 AD, and so on and so forth. Now, in speak, I know you probably have some questions, but in speaking about this, with a Taoist adept from Hong Kong, who I met many years ago, he said, he presented a very interesting theory. He said, in his opinion, there are actually three kinds of Taoism. Mm -hmm. There is the philosophical or contemplative Taoism that begins with Lao Tzu. Mm -hmm. There's the religious Taoism, which begins with Zhang Daoling, and yet we need to remember that even religious Taoism is based on Taoist philosophy. But according to this Taoist adept, he said there's this still earlier branch of Taoism, which he called Xian Shu, Xian Shu, the arts of immortality. And he says this, these were the people who were searching for longevity, health, peaceful state of mind, linked directly with early, perhaps even pre-Han Chinese shamanism. So he believed that Xian Shu, the immortality arts, which includes things like Qigong that, that are popular today, but that's actually the, the root of this Taoist tree, followed by Taoist philosophy, and then finally by Taoist religion. So that's, that's kind of the origin. But we need to remember, too, that Taoism is much more than, than a philosophy or a religion. I mean, Joseph Neiman has pointed this out, a great author on Taoism and many others, that one of the reasons it's hard to define Taoism, one of the reasons we find we're at a sort of loss for words when we're trying to categorize it, is that Taoism is a jewel with so many facets. I mean, you've, you've got the philosophy, as I mentioned. You've got ritual, liturgy, uh, ritual arts, such as the use of talismans, yang sheng, nurturing life techniques, everything from diet to breathing exercises to qigong, meditation, interior alchemy, or nei dan, nei dan, interior alchemy, where you're not trying to create gold from seawater, as in Western alchemy, mm -hmm. nor trying to reveal the light of God, as in the psychological version of Western alchemy, mm -hmm. but you're combining interior elements to create an elixir of longevity and wisdom within your body. But then what about Taoist art? The influence on landscape painting, on calligraphy, Taoist poetry, which I hope we have a chance to recite some during this interview. Yes. Taoist uh, poetry, Taoist music, Taoist cuisine, the theories of yin and yang, and the balance of the five flavors, where each flavor affects a different internal organ. That was a major influence on the development of, ch of the wonderful Chinese cuisine. And, and of course, martial arts, the I Ching. Yeah. divination, the, that's all part of Taoism. Yeah. And even, although this is a little controversial, the arts of the bedchamber, you know uh -huh. what I'm talking about? Fang Nei, the arts of the bedchamber, that is, there is in fact a kind of sexual yoga in Taoism, but although, I mean, many Westerners think, oh yes, that's we, we know about that, that's part of Taoism. Uh -huh. well, hold on a minute. There are actually many Taoists who would say that that is not really part of Taoism, there, there's some controversy here because some Taoists say that the sexual arts, because they've been so misused and because, for, from my viewpoint, for so long China has been patriarchal 
and Chinese so-called masters have used this information to take advantage of women. I really believe that. So there are many Taoists, including my own teacher, who called that Zuo Dao, left-hand Dao, in the sense of a side branch that's not properly part of Taoism. Nevertheless, in popular view, all of those different things are the, the many facets of this beautiful jewel of Taoism. So, you know, we've, we've got a challenge here. We're going we're to talk for a little while and, and try to encapsulate something that is so multidimensional and has thousands of years of history with links into so many arts and so many ancient traditions, including shamanism. Mm-hmm. So where do we go from here? Uh, well, a couple of things. One is that uh, this is so exquisitely precious that uh, perhaps you will accept for us to do a few of these. Sure. That sure, would have be, to. That would be wonderful. And then I want to speak the simple thing that happened is as soon as you began to speak about the uh, the Tao cannot be spoken, immediately I dropped down into my heart and felt completely differently than when I was saying Ken Cohen is the executive director. He has written, he has taught, he has taught. No, what came back and flooded my body is, I know Ken Cohen, he is a kind man. He is a man who is graceful. He is a man who has a mixture of a mischievous and kind smile. He is a wonderful storyteller. That's what... That's what happened. I dropped down into my heart. Oh, that is a, that is a much better introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to remember it, but I'd sure love to quote you sometime. Oh, that's... that's uh, thank you so much. It's very, that's very, very kind of you. That's it. That's... That's, and that's more what Taoism is about, because Lao Tzu in the Tao Te Ching even mentions the importance of compassion and having the kind of loving kindness that the way a mother cares for her children, Lao Tzu says we need to care for the world in that way. And boy, is that relevant today, isn't it? In fact, the, you know, the interesting thing about the Tao Te Ching, as, as compared with the, the, the beautiful wisdom which we can find in Western religion, in Judaism and Christianity, is Taoism seems to be beyond time. That is, there's no dates in the Taoist classics. I mean, in the major early philosophical classics, such as the Tao Te Ching or the Zhuangzi. So it's more of a storytelling tradition that can apply, and a philosophical tradition that can apply to us right now. And even even when we look at other later classical writings, the, the relevance is, is timeless, and partially because Lao Tzu, even back then in the 4th century B.C., was concerned with the same issues we have today. How are we going to deal with stress? How are we going to deal with corruption in the government? How will we preserve our environment? How do we celebrate the beauty of our environment through poetry, through art? You know, we, we look at the news today, and all the news does is reflect, in general, what's worst in our society and, yes. and in human nature. And Lao Tzu would remind us, as do many of the great Chinese poets and artists, that we need to remember what is best in human nature. And that's, that's really the, the purpose, one of the purposes, you could say, of Taoism and of the Taoist-inspired arts. When you, when you read a Chinese poem, it is pure joy of life. 
even if it's sad, it's still joy of life. Mm. It's still joy of life. Mm. It's like, my, you know, my wife is Mexican, and she says, you know, we love to listen to mariachi music. We just love to cry with those sad songs. And how wonderful, how joyous. It sounds odd, but it's true. It's a celebration of the many aspects of life. Perhaps we will take together a little trip in contemporary time. And uh, it is possible that you and I, at least we were in the same place at the same time in 1973. I often visited Alan Watts and uh, you were there also. And so I want to ask you, um, Alan Watts had a very deep impact on um, on the American generation of the time. And so I would like you to uh, talk about your relationship with him and how you see that impact and why it happened and how it continues. Sure. Uh, yeah, Alan was uh, a very dear friend, I'm honored to say, and mentor. And he really is one of the people who helped to introduce the West, not the only one, but one of the important ones, who helped introduce the West both to Buddhism, especially Zen Buddhism, and Taoism. And Zen Buddhism, we need to remember, is almost, you could say, 50% Taoism because it combines Buddhism from India with many aspects of Taoist philosophy and even you could say Taoist methodology, the way teachers interact with students, that combines that with Buddhism to create Zen. So, in fact, the connection is so close that I've, I've even read some Chinese texts that claim that Zen Buddhism could be considered the meditation school of Taoism. Well, that's not academically correct. It's not part of Taoism, but it does show you the close connection that's there. I first heard about Alan Watts in the late 60s, it must have been around 1967 or so, when I read D.T. Suzuki's Outlines of Mahayana Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And uh, Suzuki was one of the most prolific authors on Zen Buddhism. Still, his works are wonderful and easily available today. Alan Watts had written the introduction to that book, and you now I read this and I thought, who is this guy? There's such such clarity and brilliance. And of course, I hadn't even heard Alan speak at that point, because I, I think his greatest talent was actually the spoken word. So I, I started reading Alan's books. I began looking for seminars that he was teaching. In 1968, he taught a weekend workshop at a place called Bucks County Seminar House. Bucks County, Pennsylvania. I think I was one of the youngest people attending this three-day event. And it was actually because of that workshop that I began my lifelong fascination with and study of the Chinese language. Alan had given a lecture during this weekend program about, about music and meditation, the connection between the two. And of course, Alan was famous for saying, you don't listen to music to reach the end point. If that were the case, music would consist not of nothing but finales. <laughs> listen to music to, to flow with the unfolding process, to be completely in the present. 
listening to music. There's only the music. Well, as Alan spoke, this really caught me because I've always been a, although I don't play an instrument per se, I've been a great listener, especially to Western classical music my whole life. He recommended a book about music by a German musicologist. By mistake, the next week I bought another book of the same title. I was looking for a book about music. The book I bought by mistake, again, the same exact title, but by a different author, was an introduction to the Chinese language. So through some strange synchronicity, thanks to that Alan Watts lecture, I ended up finding a book about Chinese. I wasn't looking for a book about Chinese. I was looking for a book about music. <laughs> so anyway, Alan got me started with my, uh, well, one of the people influenced my interest in Buddhism and Taoism in, uh, in the Chinese language. And then in 1972, he announced through the newsletter of his Society for Comparative Philosophy, based in uh, California in the Bay Area, that he was going to start a summer scholarship program in which he would choose five or six students to uh, visit him at his library, which was on a privately owned piece of land in Muir Woods along the slopes of Mount Pelopias. And for that first summer, five days a week, uh, for several hours each day, for a couple of months, he would lecture about Taoism. And at the same time, he would use those lectures as, as partly as a way to explore themes he was writing about in a new book called Tao the Watercourse Way. He hoped that one of the students who applied for this program would have a working knowledge of the Chinese language and so perhaps could be of help in locating Chinese texts or even doing some translations to be included in his new book. Well, I applied. As I found out, I was one of two, about 2,000 people that applied, and to my amazement, he accepted me. He actually wrote me a letter in uh, uh, 1970, I think it was early 73, and he said, you sound like what I'm looking for. I'm going to be speaking at Carnegie Hall in New York City. Mm-hmm. Meet me backstage on such and such a date for an interview. Mm-hmm. I was rather nervous, I remember, but I went there, and... I'll never forget, uh, I mean, aside from the, the different questions he asked me to determine if I would be suitable for the program, I had a question for him. And he was about to go on stage with, I don't know how many thousands of people in the audience and lines up the block of people who couldn't get tickets because this was the, the peak of his popularity. I said, Alan, what are you going to speak about? He said in his usual King's English, oh, I don't have this slightest clue. Mm-hmm. And now you're about to go on stage. He said, if I was going to speak from notes or from, or from a prepared lecture, here's what I would do. I would go out on stage and say, good to meet you all. Please read my book. Good night. And then I'd leave <laughs> the stage. That would be it. He said, he, when he gives a talk, it's so people can meet him. Hey, imagine if our presidential candidates didn't have speechwriters. That would be a pleasure. I wish. I wish because we don't know who's talking. Yeah. We hear that we have no idea who's talking. Yeah. I want to meet the people. I want to know who they are. I don't want to hear a prepared speech. So even in terms of methods of interacting with students, Alan was the big influence. Anyway, make a long st- story short, I attended that program with uh, five other wonderful students from all over, all over the country, all over the world. Actually, one came in from Europe. And uh, 
I ended up doing most of the translations from Chinese into English that were included in that book, Tao the Water Courseway. Uh, Alan had planned to do, to do another follow-up summer the following year with another group of students where he would lecture about Vedanta. I think almost nobody knows about this. But, of course, he never lived to do that because yes. uh, he passed on after a European tour in the fall of 1973. He died in... November of 1973, but that that summer has been a, a, a lasting influence on me. Uh, let me give you one other anecdote of something that happened during that wonderful and crazy summer. Part of the scholarship was that each of the students had the option of being Alan Watts's guest at any of his workshops. So I decided to attend a workshop at Esalen Institute, a few hours south of uh, where I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, at that workshop, Alan gave his usual brilliant lectures, and we meditated together, had a wonderful time while enjoying the beautiful environment of, of Esalen Institute with the mountains right up against the ocean. And on the last evening of the workshop, there were about, I think, 70 students or so. Alan rearranged all of the tables in the Esalen dining room so they would be in a big circle. Mm -hmm. And after sharing our food, after having our dinner, Alan, at his own expense, bought in, uh, brought in cases of beer, which was permitted at Esalen. So he purchased beer for everyone, Everyone had some beer. We weren't, we weren't getting drunk, but we all had some beer. And then Alan said to me, Ken, do you have your sword with you? Alan knew, I think he saw me every morning practicing Tai Chi sword. Sword is one of the aspects of, of Tai Chi. And, I, and in those days, I used to always travel with a wooden practice sword. I said, yeah, I've got my sword back in my cabin. He said, well, go get it. I had no idea why Alan was asking me to get my sword. I run back to my cabin, run back to the dining area, and Alan, seeing me entering the dining room, stands on top of one of the tables. The food had already been cleared. And you could imagine him dressed in his uh, always elegant, usually raw silk black kimono. Mm -hmm. And he says, Ken, stand next to me. So I stand next to Alan Watts. And he says, raise your sword on high. I raise my sword over my head. And Alan starts singing Onward Christian Soldiers. <laughs> and he and, I, he and I start marching on the circle of tabletops at Esalen Institute. And then Alan, everyone is, is, is laughing hysterically. Alan motions upwards with his hands. And everyone, the whole workshop, or as many people as could fit on the tables, marched behind us uh -huh. as Alan led singing Onward Christian sh Soldiers, me with my sword raised overhead. <laughs> it's one of my, my final memories of the wonderful, crazy Taoist Alan Watts, who I think was Zhuangzi incarnate. Zhuangzi, you could say, is Lao Tzu's disciple, if not uh -huh. actually disciple, his disciple in spirit. But whereas Lao Tzu... You have to read kind of between the lines to get the mischievous twinkle in his eyes. With Zhuangzi, laughter and humor is evident right from the beginning. So I think Alan Watts shared that spirit of 
Zhuangzi, and in fact, he called Zhuangzi, well, in his opinion, Zhuangzi was the, the world's greatest philosopher. He believed Zhuangzi was the greatest philosopher of all time. Perhaps this is a good moment for some Taoist poetry. Oh, happy to. Yes. And uh, even if, uh, I mean, there are are some poets who would have self-identified as Taoist. There weren't many. Uh, Li Bai, or Li Po, as some people call him, uh, would be one of them. Uh, But the the majority of poets, while they may not have called themselves Taoists, clearly were influenced by Taoism, and many of them lived, you could say, a Taoist way of life. Uh, Here's here's a poem by Li Bai, uh, who, again, was in fact a practicing Taoist. I'll read it to you in Chinese so you get a feeling of the kind of cadence and the Mm. quality of the words, and then my own translation. Delicious. Heaven and Earth. 
by uh, by Dufu. Uh, okay, one more famous one. Okay, one more, one okay. more. We we need to do a winter one. Yes. Winter is so wonderful for its its aloneness, not loneliness, yes. but this this mood of retreat and aloneness when everything becomes yin, when the life forces are withdrawing, and you're you're cooking up new seeds of creativity that will sprout in the springtime. So here's uh, also about a thousand years old, uh, a poem called the Cold River Snow. Actually, it's just called River Snow. Most Chinese people know this one by heart. In fact, I've had fun with uh, when I've had Chinese students in my classes to show people how popular poetry is in Chinese culture. Even today, something we've lost in the West is I'll start a poem in Chinese and stop and point to a Chinese student in the class and say, tell me the next few lines. Mm-hmm. And they'll recite it by heart. So this is one of the ones that most Chinese people have read and they know. Qian shan niao fei jue, wan jing ren zong mie, gu zhou so li wang, du diao han jiang xue. A thousand mountains, not a bird. Ten thousand trails, not a footprint. Alone in a boat, an old man in straw raincoat, fishing through the cold river snow. Isn't that a beautiful image? You could see, you could see how the, the the poet is painting with words. Yes. And in fact, many of the poets in China were both uh, landscape painters, you could say, as well as poets. And uh, of some of these poets, such as the well-known Wang Wei, people said there were poems in his paintings and paintings in his poems. poems. And I should say he or she, because there were certainly female poets in China, such as Li Qingzhao. And there's really no he or she. It's, it's gender neutral in classical Chinese. So paintings in the poems and poems in the paintings. Oh, it's gender neutral. That's very interesting. Yes. Was very uh, Confucian and patriarchal. Now, Confucian had his moments, I have to say. Confucius's writings are well worth reading. I mean, even the very opening of the Analects, uh, t- to study and practice what one has learned, is that not delightful? To have friends visit from afar, is that not a joy? This is, this is practical wisdom. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of good ethical teachings in Confucius. But let's not ignore problems in Confucianism, where Confucius says, and I can quote it pretty directly, he says, there are two classes of people that cannot be trusted, servants and women. Ugh. So there, there certainly are these elements in Confucianism. Now, there were, there were other social factors that led to things like uh, foot binding or the, the confinement of women to the home and the inability of women to seek out education or better work opportunities and so forth. But I certainly think Confucianism, at the very least because of the emphasis on not an egalitarian society, which you find in Taoism, but on social hierarchy, the hallmark of Confucianism, because of that, I think that it encouraged the class divisions, uh, the the uh, economic divisions in China and the divisions between men and women. What, what a shame! I mean, in a sense, the, the Taoists were the early hippies. They were they were rebelling against this. Mm-hmm. They were saying, no, the ideal the ideal society consists of small, self sufficient communities 
where, as Lao Tzu says in the Tao Te Ching, in this 4th century BC text, he says, in an ideal Taoist culture, you can hear the roosters early in the morning in the neighboring town, but you have no particular interest to go there, because everything that you need, you're, you're self-sufficient, everything you need for your happiness and health and well-being is right at hand. Yeah, that's, that's what we need now, actually. Exactly, exactly. And, and, this, and this kind of philosophy developed uh, into a uh, kind of guideline for a, what could be called a holistic way of life. Now, yes, there are some Taoists who are more confined to the rituals, the liturgies, and so forth, but there's this undercurrent of wisdom, no matter what kind of Taoism you're practicing, all Taoists respect the philosophy of Lao Tzu and the importance of balancing yin and yang, which, which also means balancing the roles of male and female. And in that very first Taoist church, when I spoke, remember when I spoke to you about Zhang Daoling, the faith healer, you could say, who charismatic faith healer who attracted so many converts to the new religion of Taoism in the second century? Yes. Well, we, we have very clear historical records from that period, and you could see that for every rank, every office, you could say, within the Taoist church, there's a male role and a female role. And women clearly had a strong voice in Taoism, which has been reclaimed today, but for a long period in between, they lost that place, that role, because of the constrictions of Confucian society and Chinese society in general, so that even if it's understood in Taoism that women and men and young and old and rich and poor and abled and disabled have equal access to the Tao, society might not allow equal access. And that's, that's what happens, sadly, to women. I'm glad that has turned around. Mm-hmm. But when you, when you look at the, the precepts from that very first Taoist church, and you look at the first set of, you could say, ethical, not quite rules, ethical guidelines for Taoists, from uh, this one that I have here that I translated from the 3rd century A.D., remember the first Taoist church was about the 2nd century A.D., you again find this emphasis on preserving and protecting the feminine and on the balance of yin and yang. The nine, let me read you these, the nine yes. ethical precepts, first ethical code of Taoism, and this is an aspect of Taoism little known in the West, they're divided into the three highest practices, the three medium practices, and the three lowest. The three highest are number one, practice wu wei w-u-w-e-i mm-hmm. what does that mean wu wei means wu means without or not wei means effort or force basically what this means is not swimming against the stream that's not, not swimming upstream going with the flow we say in english it's kind of that feeling or not making an effort when effort isn't necessary allowing life to unfold and this is this is an important skill i think uh, all our listeners can agree that it takes a lot of experience and wisdom and a lot of mistakes, I have to say, before we know when an act of will is required in our life or when doing something means we're getting in the way of events that need to unfold naturally. So Wu Wei means no excess effort. No, It also could be interpreted as no artifice, nothing artificial. Being your, your, your true natural self, that's part of Wu Wei. 
So that's number one. That's considered an ethical guideline. Hey, what a difference from thou shalt or thou shalt not and so forth. There's no thou shalt in this. Number two, practice suppleness and yielding. Practice suppleness and yielding. That is, we don't have to always be right. We don't have to force other people to listen to our opinions. And we need, to me, this implies we need times of silence. Because if we don't have silence, there's no input. We're not hearing what anyone else has to say. That's the opposite of being supple. That's being stubborn and obstinate, of looking for confirmation of our own preconceptions, prejudices, stereotypes, opinions. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, not Laozi, but this ethical guideline, mm-hmm. uh, which is actually in a text called The Precepts of Laozi. The second one is called Practice Suppleness and yielding, or you could even say weakness. Not weakness in the sense of being a victim. We're not, we don't want that. But we want to know how to appropriately yield and move out of the way of incoming force when that pres- preserves our lives in the most efficient manner. Number three, hmm. practice protecting the feminine and don't try to be first. Again, practice protecting the feminine and don't try to be first is the criticism of every patriarchal society that's ever been, as far as I'm concerned. By the way, if you haven't guessed, I'm a feminist. Uh, Number four, practice wombing. Wombing means without name, being nameless, not promoting oneself, not always trying to be best. This goes completely against what we're calling common sense in Western society, which I think is not common sense, it's nonsense, it's craziness. Everyone's trying to one-up everyone else practicing rankism, being smarter, having more degrees, having more money, more possessions, more everything. Uh-huh. And there's no end to it. Uh-huh. And how does that make us happy? We need this, the basics for life. Don't get me wrong. We need, we need food. We need water. We need shelter. In today's world, we need some money in the bank. But at the same time, to me, humility is more the key to happiness than trying to achieve status. So Lauda says, practice wombing. This is number four, being nameless. But that also means not naming or categorizing. When you categorize, you put people in a box and you forget who they are because all you're looking at is the label. Oh, he's the doctor. Oh, oh, he's the plumber. Oh, she's the dancer. Oh, she's the artist. Well, that has a sort of relative truth to it. But ultimately, people are beyond all of those categories and titles. They are just mysterious and wonderful human beings. So number four is practice wu-ming, being nameless. Number five, practice tranquility. And this could be translated, practice clarity and tranquility. There's our call to meditation, so that we're not looking at the world through a veil of our previous ideas. So we see things for what they are, rather than for what we would like them to be. Number six, practice skillful behavior. Well, that goes back to number one, practicing Wu Wei, skillful behavior, knowing how much effort is needed in any situation. Some people might translate this practice being good, but the word Shan in Chinese, at this early period of Chinese history, in the third century AD, the word Shan, I think, more properly means skillful. And so I translate this practice skillful behavior. Finally, we're up to the lower three practices. Number seven, practice non-attachment and the state of desirelessness. Now, the Chinese simply says, practice wu yu, 
rather than being so entranced by language that we actually think the world is broken up into little bits and pieces, disconnected bits and pieces. Taoism rather stresses a philosophy not of independence, but of interdependence. Everything connected with everything else. And to the extent we can feel that, practice it, learn it through our meditation, through our cultivation of silence, through our lack of attachment to the spoken word and the thought word, to that extent we can be happy and contented. So I, I think Taoism is a kind of antidote to so many of the poisons and toxicities that we have created in this crazy, stressed-out society that we're in today. There have always been stresses, but the stresses are so ongoing now, it seems that there's no relief. We're supposed to be on all the time. We're supposed to be on the computer, on the Internet. We're supposed to have our cell phone, our smartphone. Mm -hmm. When is there a break? When do, when do people feel that, hey, it's time for me to go out and take a walk and enjoy the sight of the wind moving through the aspen trees, making them dance. I just want to look at that. Mm. I want to hear that. I want to feel the wind on my body. Mm. I don't need to be doing anything. I want to practice not doing. I don't want to be a, I want, I don't want to be a human, human doing anymore. I want to be returned to being a human being. Yes. I've been a human doing for too long. I want to be a human being. We seem to, we seem to have forgotten that today. Sorry for turning this into a Sunday sermon, but that's my, uh, you know, my my strong opinions. I love it. I love it. And Taoism is, uh, you know, it's not. People sometimes say, "Well, isn't Taoism a kind of passive religion? Aren't you talking about, you know, the weakness and suppleness and yielding? And what about the yang? What about the aggression? What about getting things done? Yeah, it does say to get things done. It just says don't do too much. Lao says in the Tao Te Ching that, that ruling a country is like cooking a small fish. If you do too much, you turn it over too many times, the, the whole thing falls, falls apart. That's, that's excellent. Can we, we're coming to the end of this particular conversation, and I have a question I'd like to ask you. You have learned Chinese, and you have read that uh, you you have written that you'd like to you wanted to learn Chinese because you could see learning a different language as freeing yourself from your own perception. So I uh, want to ask you: How has Chinese freed you from your own perception? language, that is, if you learn a very different language, whether, whether it's Chinese or Arabic or a tribal language, it categorizes the world in a different way. And we begin to realize that our words only have a, a relative truth to them, that if you look through a piece of transparent graph paper, the world seems to be broken up into boxes. But that's an attribute of the paper, of the medium you're looking through, not of the world itself. Now, if you're speaking Inuit, the Alaskan indigenous, one of the Alaskan indigenous languages, and you're describing snow, you've got a lot more boxes there than the word for snow in English. There are many more words for snow. But the question that we begin to ask ourselves when we learn a new language, 
what if we remove the paper completely? What if there are, what if we're no longer confusing our descriptive method words with that which is described? That which is described is beyond words. So I, I suggest that you can learn a new language as a way of freeing yourself from the confinements and restrictions of language in general. Mm. That, to me, was the advantage to learning Chinese. It's not that you have to learn Chinese to be a Taoist or to understand Taoist texts or that you need to necessarily uh, speak another language at all. It's not that. But what we need to do is find a way, whether it's through learning a language or through the practice of silence, so that we can experience life directly and immediately, that is, without any mediation, so that when we are listening to that music of nature, there's nothing coming between us and that. When we see that beautiful sunset, there is only the beautiful sunset. Mm. I've understood something very practical for me, for instance, if I am speaking with a person who is native French and they want to speak to me in English and I speak French, it really bothers me because I feel divorced from what is their first nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I was wondering why it, I prefer to speak to, um, to people in their own language and That's why I learned so many languages. I think from a from a desire to connect to the to the to the true place that the person comes from. And I think that's true because there is certainly a stronger emotional sense, and the connotations of words is so much clearer if you're speaking the language that you're used to. I mean, that's still another matter aside from learning how to disengage ourselves yes. from the limitations of language. But I agree with you, because when I meet someone whose first language is Chinese, I usually prefer to speak to them in Chinese for yeah. the same reason. Yeah, yeah. And yet, is Chinese closer to the truth than English? No, of course not. Yes. I think yes. Only, only silence brings us close to the truth. Thank you. Let's do this again soon, Ken, if you wish. Wonderful. What a joy. It's been a joy for me as well.